This podcast has been produced by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP and is for informational purposes only. Content discussed is for general guidance on matters of interest and should not be taken as professional legal, business, or investment advice. Welcome to Raise, a new PwC podcast series where each episode showcases a Canadian tech entrepreneur and takes a deep dive into their fundraising stories. I'm your host, Rich Adam, Managing Director of the Technology Sector here at PwC Canada. Excited to have Jafar Oenadi, co-founder and chief revenue officer of Lupio. Lupio is a Toronto-based software company where their RFP response software streamlines the way enterprises respond to RFPs, RFIs, and security questionnaires. Lupio's platform makes sales content accessible and enables collaboration across the organization. Lupio announced in February 2018 a $9 million U.S. Series A raise led by OpenView Venture Partners from Boston, Massachusetts. Jafar, welcome. Please tell us about Lupio in your own words and the story of you and your co-founders, how you met each other, how you got together, how Lupio got started. I'll sort of take it back even before we started the company. Um, so Zach and I, Zach's our CEO, we actually met when we were both around 18 years old in undergrad and university. Uh, and even back then when we were in the same orientation group, we always talked about wanting to start a company together. And back then, we had no idea what we were talking about or what we were going to get ourselves into. Uh, but our friendship continued through our careers. Zach went on to work at a venture-backed company called Achievers that was backed by Sequoia Capital. And he was at that company from 20 to 300 people and basically got his startup MBA in a lot of ways. Uh, and I went sort of a different career path, worked as an engineer for a few years, and then eventually went to do my MBA in the States and worked in management consulting. Um, and then there came a point where we sort of came back together about the potential of starting a business together. And the pain point and what you talked about earlier around responding to RFPs really came from an experience that Zach had as a sales engineer at Achievers. And so he was really the technical backbone for the sales team and was getting inundated with every single questionnaire, whether it was an RFP, a security question, or, or even just questions that would come up in an email. And so he was really tasked to find a solution to help centralize that knowledge. And that's really where me, Zach, and Matt, as three co-founders, came together to build this business and to solve for that problem. I was not aware of the extent of the history between you and Zach. That's yeah. fantastic that you guys have stuck to it, not only from that age, from yeah. kind of undergrad, but through you know startup life and the grind that goes with it. So what about the decision to become a venture-backed business, right? You'd been operating for almost four years, right? You were up to 35 employees, uh, I think 200 customers, and kind of hit the million-dollar ARR, all while being bootstrapped. Why go the venture back route? What was the motivation to do so? It's funny. Sometimes when you think about bootstrapping a, a company, uh, at times that comes with ego, uh, where it's like we're it's almost like bootstrap for life mentality. Um, but the reality is even when we started the business, we were always open uh, to the idea of raising money. It's really special for us when we started the business, especially as first-time founders, we really landed into a market where there was a ton of opportunity, ton of inbound interest, and we really were able to grow the business through acquiring customers and the revenue we were able to generate from our customers. And so we were really able to take the business uh, and... It, it really got to a point where we didn't necessarily need money, but we did want to step back and really look at the market opportunity ahead of us and how can we take advantage of the opportunity to really scale the business and create a, an amazing employer, but also be a customer-centric company that can solve this really 
excruciating pain that a lot of people go through in terms of responding to these different requests that come up in a sales cycle. As an interesting exercise, Zach actually pulled together 10 different questions that revolved around what we wanted for the company, what we wanted individually for our careers, but also what we saw as the pros and cons of raising and what we wanted to see happen with the growth of the company. And it was, it was really cool because all three of us as founders stepped aside, answered these questions individually, and we met up for breakfast a few days later and went through our answers for every single question and just saw how aligned we all were with the idea of bringing in another partner through a, an institutional investor and to drive the business to the next phase of growth. So it was, a, it was really cool that we were just so aligned and we had always built relationships and had conversations with different VCs. And I think that's something that's really unique about being bootstrapped and having product market fit is you start building inbound interest from the investor community as well. So let's talk about the raise itself. $9 million US, yeah. OpenView out of Boston, yeah. Toronto-based company. We've kind of looked, I'm sure, at uh, investors on both sides of the border. Tell us a little bit about the process and how OpenView was the, the lucky investor. I think it even goes back to something that um, a friend of mine once told me is that there's the reality is there's thousands of investors, but there's only one Lupio. And so once you do have the ability to you know, communicate the value that you've developed of a business, you do end up having a little bit of a pick on who you want to be your, your investment partner. We've had a lot of really great conversations with Canadian VCs and also with US VCs as well. For us as a Canadian business, most of our customers are actually based south of the border in the US, and we do have a lot of global customers and Canadian customers as well. But considering the market opportunity, we always focused most of our efforts from a go-to-market perspective into the US market, and we did see the value in bringing in a US partner as part of that go-to-market as well. Up until the point where we decided to raise, we probably had conversations with 50 or more investors, a handful of them being Canadian, but a a large part of them being US-based. And OpenView really stood out in the crowd because they really walked the talk. And a lot of investors are more financial investors, they're more focused on being able to provide capital and uh, really leverage their network. OpenView is really unique because not only are they a financial partner and an investor, but they also really place a strong emphasis on what they call their expansion platform, which is around how to help their portfolio companies really operate with the most effective manner possible and through the advisory of that team. Great. I wanted to delve into that a little bit more because one of the things we like to talk about is when you're making a decision to take on a partner, there's always the aspect of what do they bring to the table beyond just money beyond capital and it sounds like you found a partner with a really good fit from that for sure and going back to your earlier question in terms of why open view you know even before we decided to raise around they they already knew that we were relatively passive in our our raising process they came to the toronto office from from boston a few times they um, presented to us their view on the market opportunity in terms of rfp response software specifically they even assisted us as we were evaluating our pricing model and they actually have in-house 
pricing expertise where we analyzed our pricing model. We actually got on a few calls with one of their in-house consultants and they really assisted us in driving value. And they also connected us with a few of their portfolio companies and we ended up bringing them on as customers as well. So all of this before we even talked about the potential of raising around. So I think that that's pretty unique. I would describe it as very unique because in a lot of cases, the founders are having to go out and court the VCs, whereas you are successfully bootstrapping the business to you know a great level of success before considering taking on any money, you've actually got people coming to you. That's a nice position to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the traditional idea of having to go on a roadshow and pitching over and over again and getting rejected every time before you finally find someone who actually understands your story and is, is willing to invest. I think that is that holds very much true, especially in early rounds. I think the fact that we had built a market presence and had uh, brought on some pretty marquee customers up until that point, and a lot of our customers are also software and venture-backed companies. So when their investors would ask, hey, are there any solutions that you're using today that are driving impact for your team? And they'll say, yeah, like we're using Lupio. Those very same investors would also come to us and inquire for it. I was going to say your phone would start ringing. Yeah. Honestly, when we started the company, especially never having started a company before, never having raised any money before, I was very much socialized to uh, look at investment and look at uh, the process of raising in the way that it's portrayed in shows like Silicon Valley or otherwise. It was the reality of what I've learned now, especially talking to other founders who've built successful businesses, is it is a relationship game, but it's also um, the investors have money they need to deploy and invest in really high-performing businesses. And the reality is there actually aren't that many high-performing businesses in the market, and there's a lot of capital to deploy. And so it was, it was really special to be on the, the receiving end of those conversations. And um, you still have to sell, you still have to pitch, you still have to deliver value in those discussions. But uh, getting that inbound in- interest was, was pretty cool. So I'd love to just talk about that a little bit more because so you were having this inbound interest and that in and of itself isn't completely unique. But the fact that you weren't kind of matching that by actively going out into the marketplace mm-hmm. Did you have investor decks ready? Did you have a data room available and ready, right? When people who are doing the road shows or preparing to do fundraising start to build that foundation of information uh, and the metrics and everything that they know VCs are looking for. Did you keep that ready just for when the phone did ring and you had somebody interesting on the other side of the line that you wanted to be able to engage with? I would say yes, uh, but not to the extent of what we have today. I think uh, looking at the business, we were always very process-oriented in terms of how we operated. We've always maintained uh, our company metrics on a weekly basis, and we would actually review them as a business on a weekly basis. So we had a lot of diligence in terms of those core metrics that a venture capital firm or, a, or even a growth equity or private equity firm would look into. We also carried a lot of diligence in how we maintained our customer data and also things like our customer contracts. We typically hold our customers on a standard set of terms and conditions, but if there's any that are negotiated or there's uh, nuances in the terms that are agreed to, those are centralized, those differences are stored, and you know, 
we didn't know it at the time, but when due diligence came around, we were more prepared than we thought we were. Um, and so we were in a, in a pretty um, good place in terms of being able to compile all the documentation and it didn't necessarily feel like a mad rush. It wasn't as onerous as other people have kind of shared with us in terms of the due diligence process. I will say that, you know, so many other guests on the show have been well prepared, whether that was through the process of, of fundraising or even the preparation that they had going in. But it seems to me that you were already operating your business in a way that lent itself well to going through the due diligence process with minimal effort. For sure. I think one thing that helped is earlier on, before we even raised any money, we did uh, have conversations with different banks about the potential of, uh, of a debt raise. And we did end up securing a form of a credit facility, but it was more passive in, in terms of like having something available and just sort of good business practice at the end of the day. Even doing that was helpful in terms of making sure that we knew the kind of documentation we need to have prepared. I think in terms of the diligence process, I do think it depends on the investment partner as well in terms of the kind of diligence that they're going to conduct and also the stage of the business on when the diligence is conducted. I would anticipate that you know if we were to pursue a Series B, that the diligence would be more substantial than what we went through in the Series A. But OpenView did conduct a technical diligence, legal due diligence, and also financial due diligence. And we were able to also not only have the ability to pull our resources within Lupio to get things done, but also lean on our partners like our, our lawyers to help us through the diligence process as well. But overall, the process from term sheet to close and you know money in the bank was shy of 30 days. So it was, it was a relatively quick process. So let's just talk about the fact that you raised $9 million US Series A, not an insignificant amount, through a single investor, not a syndicate, which is often the case, right? You've got people who lead then people who follow on. How has that idea of having a single investor at the table, I'm assuming a new member at the board level, but almost a fourth co-founder in a way. Is that a fair description of how that relationship works? Talk us through that whole dynamic. Yeah. It's absolutely a partnership. Um, basically, the second you raised around, like it, it's a marriage, you're, you're in it together all the way through to hopefully a successful outcome at the end of the day. Interestingly enough, when we were thinking about raising around, we did lean on the idea of wanting to bring in a single partner and someone who would have the ability to fund an entire Series A, but also be able to participate significantly in a Series B. And as we were talking to different investors, that was actually part of the criteria of ones that had made substantial investments and they're able to write a large check size and OpenView ended up fitting that criteria. In terms of you know dynamics of what that translates to after the investment, one part is typically the investment partner is going to have at least a board seat. In our case, it was a single board seat, but also an observer seat. So the ability to partake in the board meetings, but not necessarily have a vote. As part of the round, it also opened up the opportunity to bring on an independent. And that was an individual who Lupio was able to select, but also was approved on a board level. Interesting. So a very purposeful decision in terms of pursuing a single investor. Correct. With not only for the Series A, but for the potential of a future round. Potentially, yes. There's obviously value when looking at future rounds to bring in additional parties into the conversation as you look to drive further growth. 
But for us, it's around, at the very least, them able to participate in a substantial way in, in a B. Not that saying that OpenView isn't everything you wanted for in a partner, but would you comment on, say, the pros and cons of having a single investor versus a syndicate? Obviously, I haven't been through the experience of having a syndicate, but I can speak to sort of anecdotally what I've learned from other people who have been through that. There's definite benefits from a network perspective. So if you're bringing an investor, like a core financial investor, like an open view or, or otherwise, but there are others that can join a syndicate. You know, Slack has a fund, Salesforce has a fund, Workday has a fund. Bringing in corporate investor into the fold can sometimes have its benefits, both from a relationship standpoint with them being a potential customer or an existing customer, but also from an acquisition standpoint as well. There's some benefits there. Typically, those types of investors have sort of right of first refusal with the opportunity to partake in an acquisition. And if you are pulling in one of their investment arms into the fold, uh, that's a different kind of relationship than, than one where they're not actually, they don't have skin in the game. And there's also benefits in things from an expertise standpoint and things from a network standpoint that come in from a syndicate. We lean really heavily on our own networks as founders, but also on the networks of our investors to help supplement that. But um, those are definitely some of the pros and cons uh, with building a syndicate. Great. Appreciate that perspective. So you and your co-founders sat down over breakfast and then some takeaway questions that you had came back. Great alignment on your decision to want to go forward. What might you say the three of you learned throughout the whole process? Admittedly, it wasn't a big grinding roadshow process, but I'm sure had some lessons learned throughout it. For sure. I think, you know, I mentioned that we had a ton of inbound interest from different investors And I would say that we probably had some investors that were probably further along in the process or in the conversations than others, Uh, OpenView being one of them with a handful of others where we were in much later, more sort of deeper relationships with them. One thing that I would do or that I would suggest other people do is, you know, try to keep your sort of your top picks at sort of an equal level of depth when it comes to relationships so that if and when you're ready to raise, you can immediately reach out to all of those potential investors to drive a faster dialogue towards driving forth a term sheet. So that's that's one area what I'd definitely recommend. And the nice thing is we really liked OpenView and OpenView liked us and they decided to invest in us, but there's obviously a world where they may have decided otherwise. And we did have other investors that we would be able to lean on and we built really strong relationships with them. Uh, but there's others that we also were huge fans of that would have taken perhaps a few weeks or a month or more to sort of get them to the same level. So we wouldn't have been able to execute at the same velocity as we did with the OpenView deal. You talked about having a single board member and an observer seat. Correct. Right. And then an independent. What are some of the other things you've learned around board composition, structure, mm-hmm. governance? Um so Zach, as our CEO, runs a lot of the governance side of things. But when we first raised our round, I actually wasn't CRO. Uh, my role was COO and CFO. So I was actually the secretary of the board. So I was very heavily involved in some of those board dynamics and resolutions and all the things that happen on the board level. The biggest thing that I would say is, especially when you first raise a round, is once the round is closed, the pitching is over. And I want to be clear, that was pitching with a P. And uh, when you think about the um, 
the dynamics when you're actually in in the mode of raising money, you're trying to continue portray the best elements of your business. You might be uh, real about some of the challenges you're facing as as well, but you're not necessarily talking about how there's other opportunities for improvement in the business that you want to work on. So the second you get into that first board meeting, you just need to lay all your cards on the table and you need to really think about it to what it is, a partnership where now you're not on opposite ends of the table, you're sitting on the same end of the table and working together towards pushing the business forward. And I think uh, for some people that becomes a hard shift. And I know that we had a conversation as a founding team after we raised a round of like, hey, change in mentality. These are our partners. Let's collaborate and work together. And I find that our board meetings are really powerful. We try to spend most of our time focusing on challenges and things that we can do together as a board to drive the business forward. And I do think it's important from a board perspective that um, there's never any surprises and that you don't leave the conversations to the board meeting. So for example, Zach actually has a weekly call with our investment partner. So every single week they're in touch, updates what's going on, what's not happening, what needs to move faster. And all of those meeting notes are actually centralized and shared with me and Matt as well as co-founders of the business. So let's jump into a rapid fire round of questions. Just a few things to, uh, sure. to wrap it up. Okay. What is your go-to resource for all things fundraising and venture capital? If I rewind two years ago when we first raised our round, very different world. Definitely leaned on some resources in terms of books. So Mastering the VC Game and Venture Deals were two really great ones but also tapped into my my network from my business school. A lot of my classmates are VCs, so got to learn from them as well. Today, I would say my resources lean much more heavily on my network and people who've been there, done that, and also to our sort of legal counsel and, and other sort of vendors or consultants we work with. Do you maintain either with your co-founders or outside of your co-founders a peer group, a mentor group that's either formal or informal? And if so, how valuable has it been? So Zach has a formal group uh, and he meets with them regularly. And I know it's been really impactful for him. And I actually just started pursuing building my own more formal group. I have an informal peer group uh, where I'm able to tap in to that network and just chat about different things. And sometimes we get together after work for drinks. But yeah, I do see the value in having a peer group. And, and the key word there is peer, where uh, you're either at the same stage or you have people in there who are slightly ahead of each other. So I always, we were talking uh, just before we started the, this conversation about, you know, wow, like we raised around more than two years ago. And I really had to jog my memory to remember some of those early things that happened then. And two years doesn't sound like a long time, but a lot happens in a two year period. So the same goes to your advisors and your peers is a business that maybe exited five years ago, that founder maybe had amazing stories of that journey, but they don't necessarily have the same things that are top of mind or the same challenges top of mind of a Series A company. What would be the biggest learning you had from the fundraising experience? I think I, I shared some of that earlier in terms of you know trying to get the different sort of top VCs on your list at an equal playing field. That's a really big one, I would say. I don't have any regrets in what we went through in terms of our process. But I think that that's a, that's a really big one. And another thing to consider is always pay very close attention to the deal that you're negotiating and the nuances around the deal. So a lot of people really anchor heavily on valuation. It's really important to also think about your ability as a business to grow into that valuation, 
what are the implications in terms of the pressure on the company if you overvalue the company itself and thinking about some of the elements in terms of liquidation and things like that that come into a term sheet that you need to negotiate effectively because they do have implications on future rounds. Great advice for sure. Any other advice that you'd share for peers that are either in the process of fundraising or considering it going forward? I think one thing is really important as you look at some of the really amazing venture capital firms that are out there in the market, always also recognize who is the investment partner that you're working with directly. Um, That is something that we are very fortunate to have a really strong investment partner, Ricky from OpenView. We just built a really strong rapport and a strong bond. We also even considered the fact of how many different boards is Ricky on. If you have an investment partner that's sitting on 15 different startup boards, what is their ability to give you the focus that you need to drive your business forward and how engaged are they in your company? And so uh, I think paying close attention to the person in addition to the fund is essential. And then looking at the fund in terms of what's the value they're going to drive and conducting your own due diligence by talking to other companies funded by them. In some cases, those references may be introduced directly by the investor, but I would also would never hesitate to do a back channel reference and just try to get deep in terms of what the dynamics are once the money's in the bank. Our investors did that to us. They definitely back channeled and uh, I appreciate them doing that because it is a long-term relationship. For sure. Yeah, that whole idea of being able to say, okay, what are things like when things are all rosy and the hockey stick is going up and to the right, but what happens when you bump into a, a tough quarter? Exactly. Or maybe two tough quarters, right? Yeah. Where are they, are they there to pile on or are they there to help you kind of dig out? Absolutely. And, and those are some of the things we definitely were able to learn from from the reference calls. and. For us, the stories were very positive. And even in situations where there were multiple rough quarters in terms of some of the references we did, the conversations were always like, don't worry, we're a team, we're in it together, let's figure out how to solve this. And I think that is one of the things I appreciate most in a partner. So those are the things I would emphasize when talking to investors to learn about. Jafar, thank you very much for your time. The stories, again, unique to Lupio, but there's so much learning that you've been able to share with listeners and for other founders that are considering raising venture capital money or those that may be in the process of it. So thank you very much for your time and certainly to you and your co-founders. We wish you and the entire Lupio team continued success. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Raise. You can get more details at pwc.com slash CA slash Raise. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform. Until the next time.